So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am lying a stone, uh, sorry, I am lying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which rage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we took a little break last week for Unity Sunday, but we're back in 1 Peter, and now we're going to get into chapter 2. Now, Peter told us the purpose of his letter, and this is in chapter 5, verse 12. Peter said, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So the apostle wants to make clear what is the true grace, what is the gospel, what is the, the main thing about Christianity, both in doctrine, in, in doctrine, in the teaching, in the knowledge of it, but also in, in the practice of life. And we're actually today kind of coming at the, at the transitional point in the letter where he's talked a lot about our identity and the doctrine of it, and now he's going to move into the practical stuff of how you actually live it out. So we're still largely dealing with identity today, but next week we will largely be dealing with the practice of what we have learned so far. So the first three verses of chapter 2 use this fam family metaphor, and we talked about it two weeks ago. Christians are likened to newborn babies that grow by 
being nursed. And so we grow by being nourished by pure spiritual milk. The same word that saves us is the same word that grows us in our new life. And as we grow, we grow together in our relationships, in our community with each other. So Peter says that we should put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander, and, and love each other. Love each other because that's part of this new life that's nourished by his word, his gospel. But then at verse 4, there's a transition. Peter largely is talking about the same realities of who we are in Christ as a community, but he's now using the metaphor of a building. So from family to building. The church is a spiritual house with Christ as the foundational cornerstone and believers as living stones connected to Christ and to each other. That's not just a house, it's a temple. Temple with priests and sacrifices. And that too is part of our Christian identity. The church is a temple of the living God. And then in verses 11 and 12, I'm trying to give you a little overview to kind of let you know where I'm going with this. In verses 11 and 12, there's a transition to the practice of our faith. And then the rest of the letter is concerned with how we live out our Christian identity in front of the unbelieving world. So this morning, I will touch on the verses 1 through 3 in the beginning of the chapter, and I will touch on 11 and 12. It's relevant, but I will mostly focus on this metaphor of the temple, metaphor of the spiritual house that applies to the church. I'd like to draw out just two truths, but very significant truths, from this image of the church as a temple. Number one, we know God in the church. We know God in the church. And number two, we know ourselves in the church. We know ourselves in the church. We find God as he really is in the church, in this spiritual temple, and we find ourselves as we really are in the church and through the church. Let me make my case for this, okay? Now, you may have noticed that Peter, throughout his letter, is using... Old Testament language. He's quoting directly from the Old Testament. So in our passage, he's quoting from Isaiah and Psalms and Hosea. <clears throat> when he's not using direct quotes, he alludes to various verses. This, this is, you can't understand Peter without the Old Testament. There's just no way to understand what he means because he's using verses, specific verses, allusions and concepts and ideas that all come from the Old Testament. He is deliberate. This is what he's doing. He deliberately transfers Israel's identity as God's chosen and redeemed people to his readers, a largely Gentile congregation of first generation Christians. And by extension, that same identity of God's people applies to us. So he takes something that is well defined in the Old Testament, and now he says, that applies to you now. You're not starting from scratch. You need to root yourself in this identity of God's people. And all these ideas, all these stories, all these concepts that apply, they apply to you. His point is that all that Israel was now applies to the church. And these persecuted congregations scattered in Asia Minor, scattered, scattered around the Roman world, are part of God's people who derive their identity from their covenant relationship with God and whose destiny is determined by the same God. Now, this is important because we're going to get into one specific idea, the temple. 
But this comes in the context of all sorts of ideas of being ransomed, being in a covenant with God, having a living hope, uh, having a hope of a, an inheritance. All those things are, these are all Old Testament ideas. And Peter is transferring them to the church very deliberately, very carefully, very systematically. He wants us to think of ourselves as God's people and draw encouragement and draw understanding of who we are from the history of God's people, including the Old Testament. So now Peter takes this one particular idea, the temple, one of the main identity markers for Israel. Now you remember that the temple was extremely important for Israel. This is what, what made them who they were. As long as the temple was intact, we were okay. This is a big deal for them when the temple was destroyed. So Peter is taking that main, one of the main identity markers and now applies it to the church. Israel had a physical building in Jerusalem, and now the church is a spiritual building that fulfills the same functions. In other words, all that the Jerusalem temple was, the church is. The main function of the temple, of course, was to be the meeting place between God and His people. Now, of course, God is everywhere, and people in the Old Testament knew that, and we know that. But His presence was localized and expressed as His glory in the temple. In the temple, sacrifices were offered by the priests to ensure that the people's connection with God remained intact. God's people gathered in unity at the temple for various feasts and holidays. God's word was proclaimed there at the temple. God met with his people there. So in the Old Testament, if you wanted to find God, you went to the temple. There's no other place to go. If you wanted to know God, to know what he's like, you went straight to the temple. That's where all the answers were. That's where all the experiences were. That's why the Ethiopian eunuch goes to Jerusalem to learn about this God of Israel. That's the place where God's glory is localized. Now, Peter takes all these ideas, all these temple ideas and images, and he applies them and develops them in the church. For a Bible reader, this is very exciting. I mean, I hope it is for you, because if you've read the Old Testament, and if you've paid attention to all these different ideas, all these themes, you get to some of these passages in the New Testament, like 1 Peter, or like Hebrews, like there's passages like that, or John, well, probably any passage, right? And you see how those, those themes culminate in Christ. They culminate in the church. They culminate in the new covenant. And you see how it all fits together. The puzzle now is fit together. So Peter takes these temple ideas and images and he applies them to us, to the church. The church is the new meeting place between God and people. The church is the new localized expression of God's presence. God's glory is in the church. The church is the new priesthood. The church offers new sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. The church proclaims the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So if you want to find God, you go to church. You'll find Him in the church. That's the point. Now i got to define the church, okay? Because I know I'm making some of you nervous already. I will make my case and I will define the church. 
How does Peter present the church here? Because he's talking about this Christian community. He's talking about all these Christians in Asia Minor, these congregations of Christians. And what, how does he describe them? Because that will tell us what the church is. It's really clear that he does not see the church primarily as an institution, even though he talks about elders and the structure of leadership later. Or a program, certain things we do. He doesn't talk about it very much, specifically. Or a physical building. Clearly, these believers didn't have a designated building to be a church, a church building. So the church is not primarily an institution, not primarily a program or a physical building, even though all those things are often part of our church experience. The church is a spiritual house comprised of living stones, of which the main one is the risen Jesus Christ. That's Peter's definition. A spiritual house comprised of the living stones of which the main one, the foundational cornerstone, is Jesus Christ himself. And while every congregation must have a physical place to gather, we can't gather without a place. We must have a leadership structure. How do we make decisions? We have to figure it out according to Scripture. And we have specific events like worship services or kids' programs. But those are necessary expressions of the church, and yet they're not the church. The church primarily is a spiritual community. Or to borrow another metaphor from Peter, is a family. Church is a family where all the people are connected to one another through their connection to Jesus. So in other words, whenever you find a group of people that are connected to Jesus, and through Jesus they're connected to one another, that's a church. That's a local congregation. Now, some churches are more biblical than others. Some are more ordered according to Scripture than others. We all strive to be more biblical. That's the right thing. And so we correct and tweak and adjust. But any group who associates with Jesus directly and associates with another because of Jesus primarily, that's why they gather, that's why they love each other, is a church. Notice the image of stones connected to each other to make a building with Jesus being one of the stones. You know, Peter says, uh, he says, as you come to him, a living stone. So he is a living stone. Jesus is a living stone. And then you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Jesus and us both comprise the structure of the spiritual building. Each believer is a stone connected to him, to Jesus, and to other stones. Both Jesus and the believers are described in a similar way in terms of our connection to each other, and yet Jesus is given preeminence and the primary shaping and foundational stabilizing influence to the community. We're living stones because the resurrection life of Jesus makes the church a living, growing community animated by the Holy Spirit. We're a spiritual house, a temple. When the Old Testament talks about house of God, a spiritual house, that's God's dwelling. That's where God is. It's a meeting place of God and His people. And so we, the people of God today, are all priests in that we operate in God's presence. 
We meet with him. We hear from him. We're all on that level of communion with him. Every one of us, if you're a true believer, you're a priest. You're welcome in God's presence. You're doing sacramental things. We offer sacrifices. But they're spiritual sacrifices, is what Peter says. They are not sin offerings because it says that they are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because a final sacrifice has already been made and peace with God has already been achieved once and for all, our sacrifices are now sacrifices of thanksgiving and sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of our whole life on the altar to Him. That's what we do when we fulfill priestly sacrificial functions in this temple. And if the church is the new temple, the new place of meeting God, it is fair to say that if one is looking for God, they will find him in the church, in the spiritual community of followers of Jesus. Now, I know that this sounds a bit too narrow for some of us, a bit too communal for some of us, a bit, a bit too ecclesiastical for many American evangelicals today. The question we must ask is, is it true? Does the Bible teach that? I'm saying that, but does the Bible teach that? And if you read the New Testament, you are faced with the reality that the New Testament simply does not separate conversion from the church. The New Testament doesn't see a category of a lone Christian, somebody who kind of comes to Christ on his own, grows in Christ on his own, understands doctrine on his own. There's just not an idea in the New Testament about that. We've come up with these ideas, but it's not a biblical idea. And so it's not that the Bible needs to adjust itself to us. We need to adjust to the Bible. Evangelism and the church are inextricably linked in the New Testament. What did Paul do? Well, you can say he held evangelistic meetings wherever he went. That's fair. That's true. But what was the, the necessary, inevitable, expected result? Churches. He, anywhere he went, anywhere the gospel was preached, there was a church started there. Church growing, church developing with elders and deacons and people gathering regularly and helping each other and helping the poor. That was normal. Those were not two ministries. I'm going to come preach the gospel. People get converted. Let's send some disciple people. You know, maybe they can organize them. Now let's send somebody from our denomination. Maybe they can do a parish here or something. No, that's not how it worked. It's all the same thing. As the gospel is preached, the church, churches are born because the gospel lives in the church. Now look at the picture in our text. We have God as an architect of the temple. Just as he gave very specific instructions to Moses and then later to Solomon of how this temple is supposed to be built, he builds the church according to his own design. God builds the structure with Christ as its cornerstone and believers as the living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Christ and his people are part of the same structure. This is how God builds it. Notice that Christ is not apart from the church, nor are we disconnected from each other in this picture. In God's design of the temple, of the spiritual house of the church, we're all together. Christ and us all together, side by side, as living stones. Rejecting Christ, according to Peter's understanding of the church, 
is being excluded from God's building project. You're not part of what God is doing if you're rejecting Christ. Again, Christ and the church together. But accepting Christ is being included in the church. Now listen to one commentator. There's one single temple into which all believers are built. The Christian church is not primarily a social organization, but the new temple where the transformed lives of believers are offered as sacrifice to the glory of God. The imagery of the living stones being built into a single unit implies that the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. Let me read that again. The purpose and significance of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others, not only in one's own generation, but also by being united with believers of every generation who likewise have been built into God's grand building project. The structure will be completed only when the scaffolding of human history comes down and the kingdom of Christ is revealed in all its glory. This is God's vision. That's not mine. That's not yours. This is God's vision. God is the architect of this new community, of this new people. This is what he's doing. So based on that, I am pretty comfortable with saying that we find God in the church. I think it's biblical. I think that's where God reveals himself. This is where God dwells. That's where his glory is localized. It's in his people. The church is called the body of Christ. There's the spirit of Christ that moves among us, but then there's the visible body of Christ. That's us. And so if you want to know God, you find God in the church. You know him in the church. We are part of the building where Jesus is the cornerstone, which means that we are shaped and stabilized and defined by who he is. But we are stones of the same building. Now, he gives us direction. He gives us shape. He gives us stability and a firm foundation. That's all from him. And it only matters if we are connected to him. But we are connected to him and to each other at the same time. We are God's household. It's another idea. Temple is a house, right? We're a spiritual house. Well, whose house is it? It's God's house. And if it's God's house, that's where you meet God. If you want to know somebody, you go to their house, right? You meet them where they live, and you learn about them as they are. Having found God in the church, we continue to experience Him in the church. Believers are living stones, meaning we, we grow and we change, and we're like infants, to go back to the earlier metaphor. We're like infants who are growing. We're nourished by God's Word, and so we grow and we change. We get stronger. And we notice that Peter puts that growth, that change of an infant, into the context of relationships in the church. That's another evidence to us that God doesn't imagine our growing outside of his community. That's not something God envisions. Those ideas of personal growth 
and community involvement are the same. They're, they're together in God's eyes. In verse 1, Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So where do you taste that the Lord is good? <laughs> it's in the church. And part of it, part of your nourishment, part of your growth is connected with all the other people around you. And so if we collectively put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and love each other, we grow in God. We discover who He really is because He is not full of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy. So as we reflect Him in our relationships, as we prioritize love, we actually experience God in our midst. That's part of His glory. That's part of His expression. It's through the church. And for the church, the church as the biblical setting for our experience of God, this applies to both Christians growing in grace, like most of us here, and for non-Christians to whom the church proclaims the gospel. It proclaims it out of the community, out of our life, out of our loving relationships. Now, I don't know if you remember, but about a month ago, we had a prayer vigil, and we prayed through the book of Revelation, and then I try to clarify and possibly confuse some of you by, by giving you a, a simple, what I thought was a simple synopsis of the book of Revelation. But the main point I wanted to make is that the church in the book of Revelation is deliberately positioned between heaven and earth. So if you just look at the descriptions of location, of sort of the geography of, of, of how the book of Revelation is presented, the church is in between. The church is on earth, but it longs for heaven. The church worships God in heaven and receives communication from him. Angels come back and forth, and the church is kind of trying to bring both together. That's the vision of the church. Now, when you think about it in the context of experience of God, both for believers and unbelievers, that becomes crucial. And this is consistent with the temple idea. The temple is that place between earth and heaven where God meets with his people, where sacrifices are made, where priests do things to connect us to God. And so that's the church now. Priests and sacrifices and worship, all of that is between heaven and earth. So anyone who reaches for God must find themselves in the church because it's on the way. You can't go around it. We're right there in the middle. If you're going towards God, you're going to meet us. For believers who are standing on their tiptoes and stretching their hands toward heaven, we find that we need somebody to keep our balance. And so you trust and you lean on someone else doing exactly the same thing next to you. For unbelievers who take their eyes off the ground and wonder if there is anything more to this life than this world, they look to the community gathered by the one who came from heaven to earth. Of course, that's where they would expect to find answers. We're in between. I loved Sarah Lovano's post on Realm about Kit's Connection last week. 
And if you missed it, go back and read it on Realm. That actually is what church is. I mean, it's amazing how in, in this example of us serving together as God's people here and serving others, how that's the glory of God that, that shines through that. I mean, you see, this, this is the temple. This is the spiritual house. We had unchurched kids from our community alongside a few kids from our church. Again, mixing. It's church people and unchurched people. That's how it's supposed to be because we're in between, you see. We had several people from the church serving the kids in very different ways, a lot of variety. The excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light were proclaimed in the teaching verbally. The kids heard the gospel. They were taught good, right, true things. But they were also exhibited. These excellencies of, of God were exhibited in the way the Christians interacted with the kids by feeding them and playing with them and keeping them safe and engaged and making sure that a, a kid in a wheelchair has access to the elevator and wiping drool off people's faces. I mean, th that's the, the kind of stuff that expresses the function, the nature of the church. We're supposed to be that. And on a good day, we are. This is God in the church. This is God's glory in the church. We who are in the church grow in our experience of God as we worship and serve together. I grew spiritually because I was around other families on Wednesday night that were learning catechism, that were learning scripture, that were disciplining their kids and playing with their kids. I grew because of that. That helped me. I hope it helped everybody else, but that, that whole presence of each other looking for God, reaching for Him, and helping each other do that is incredibly encouraging and nourishing to my faith and to others' faith. And we present this God, the God we know, the God that's among us in this temple, we present this God to the world as we proclaim His excellencies. Now, you got to know His excellencies to proclaim them. You got to have tasted that he is good to share his goodness with others. But as you do that, you do that verbally and you do it through your lives. It's not accidental that after this great vision of the spiritual temple that Peter gives us, he then talks about conduct in verses 11 and 12. He talks about holiness. He talks about how we are to live differently and abstain from the passions of the flesh and keep our conduct honorable so that when the world looks at us, they not only hear what we say, but they're also saying, that seems to be consistent. These are not evil people. I don't see malice or deceit or envy in their midst. I see love. I see that what they're saying about God is what they really believe, and that's how they live. A story is told about a Spartan king boasting to another king about the walls of Sparta. He was boasting how great the walls of Sparta are. When the visiting king looked around and he saw no walled city, there were no walls in Sparta. And he asked, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? And the Spartan king pointed to his army and said, these are the walls of Sparta, every man a brick 
because that was the protection of the city. Every man a brick in the renowned walls of Sparta. So as your pastor, this is what I want to do. I want to point to you, and I want to say, this is God's temple. Every person a living stone, every Christian part of the spiritual house, everyone a window letting the marvelous light of God into the darkness of the world. This is who we are. This is what Peter is saying. Remember, he's simply telling you who you are. You already are that. You don't need to become that. You are that. Now he just wants you to live it out, to actually be authentic and live according to your true identity in Christ. I'm going to share uh, a piece I read, an, an essay I read a while ago, and I heard this author talk on the podcast as well, which really piqued my interest. Jonathan Jarks, uh, if you're into the NBA, you may know his name. So he was one of the, the reporters and bloggers for Dallas Mavericks, I think. He, he was not a believer, didn't grow up a believer, converted in his late, late 20s, and then died from cancer at 34 this year, died this year, leaving his wife and young son, maybe two years old, and then he wrote, he worked for The Ringer, which is a, a, a website about sports and pop culture. And if you read that, you, you know what it, what it is. Um, he, he wrote this essay that, that, that's called, Does My Son Know You? Does My Son Know You? Now, he wrote it pretty close to his death. He certainly knew he was dying. Uh, apart from a miracle, he knew that he was going to die. He was going through chemotherapy, and it was just delaying uh, his passing. But he was thinking a lot about his own life, the life of his child that he's about to leave, this young child that's really not going to know his father. He's reflecting on his life, and in his life, his father, Jonathan's father, died when he was 21. But he was sick since he was 12. He had Parkinson's, and according to Jonathan, he just kind of disappeared very early in his life. And he said that uh, at first, when his father got diagnosed, a lot of people were there to encourage them, to bring meals, to send cards. But then he said very quickly, the cards stopped coming and people stopped visiting. And so by the time his father actually died, so, so this is nine years later, uh, there were lots of people at the funeral, lots of people his father knew, but lots of people that he, Jonathan, didn't know. And he said, I know your names. I heard my father talk about you, but I don't know you. And so he writes this essay basically encouraging his friends to know his son, saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be gone, but do you know my son? Will you stay in community with him? Will you be there for him years and years later? And what's interesting is that he connects it to his faith. I mean, this is a, a universal human longing for community. But he connects it to his faith, and he talks about his experience of church. And I've never heard anybody talk about church that way. Now, part of it is because he's a new believer. He's still trying to figure out our lingo, right? So he's using terms that are kind of Christian, but you're not totally sure he didn't get completely right. Uh, but he's talking about his experience of church primarily through his participation in a life group a small group, this weekly gathering of believers from his church. It, it, it's a great, read, read that, there's a link in, in the manuscript, you, you can read that, that whole essay, 
But it's interesting that he talks about churches belonging to this life group. And he said that especially when he got sick, they just did not miss any of those meetings. He said it was extremely difficult. And there was COVID and there was his chemotherapy. And, and he said, we had to prioritize that because that what, what God was doing in my life. This is how he knew God. It's through this consistent relationships with other believers. Now, he's a new person to church. And I'm sure he went to church on Sunday and that's good that he went. But his connection to God, his growth, actually happened in this life group. It's this weekly small group. Now, this is what, what he says. This is Jonathan's words. He says, I can't imagine not being in a life group at this point. He's really sick right now when he writes this, about, about to die. Human beings aren't supposed to go through life as faces in a crowd. It's like the song from Cheers. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Life group is a different kind of insurance People talk a lot about medical insurance and life insurance when you get sick. But relational insurance is far more important. I didn't need my dad's money, he said, but I could have used some of his friends. Relational insurance, meaning that you are investing in relationships that at some point in your life become crucial, become super important. But you already invested in that. And now you reap the benefit of that. And everybody who's really involved in a church knows exactly what he is talking about. We all know that. But it only happens if you are intentionally, consciously see yourself as a living stone in this building. And if you do so, in a time of crisis, you often discover that people are there. Not everybody you thought would be there, but a lot of people are there genuinely caring for you. The church is that kind of relational insurance that Jonathan Charks talks about. But it's much more than that. It's not just that. It's much more than that. The church is a spiritual house where the Lord dwells with his people through the body and spirit of Christ. So the application here is how intentional are you about your place in the local community of Jesus? Are you growing in your experience of God through and in the context of your experience with other believers in the church? Others who are also connected to Jesus and you are connected to Jesus, but you're connected to one another. Are you proclaiming His excellencies out of the life of the church? Not on your own somewhere else, but now this is part of community. This is part of what we do and we do it together in some way. Well, that's my first point. Luckily for you, I only have two, which is why I only have two, because I knew this was going to be most of it. Not only do we know God in the spiritual temple, the church, we also know ourselves in the church. We know ourselves in the church. We experience God, we find God, but we find ourselves and experience who we really are in the church too. Now, here's the picture that Peter paints by using multiple quotations from Isaiah and the Psalms and other allusions, God is building a temple with Jesus as its cornerstone. This cornerstone is chosen by God and is precious to Him. Not accidental. God chose Jesus to be the cornerstone, the foundation of this new temple. Now, whoever believes in Jesus is incorporated into God's building project 
and will never be disappointed, never be put to shame. In fact, whoever believes in Jesus shares in his honor and is chosen and precious to God like Jesus. That's the image. But that's not all of it. There's another piece to that. There's another piece to this image. There's another construction project happening in the world. And these builders have rejected God's cornerstone. It just kind of sits in the middle of their construction site and they constantly stumble and trip over it and fall and curse it. And eventually, they stumble and fall to their utter shame and ruin. Now, it's based on the proclamation and witness of the church. According to the gospel of Jesus, as the only cornerstone for his enduring temple, that every person figures out their true identity. Every person learns who they are based on the witness and the proclamation of the church. You're either a living stone in the spiritual house of God, never to be put to shame, or you are stumbling and falling to your ruin over Jesus, over the scandal of the cross and his resurrection. Those who disobey the word, what is the word, the message, the gospel about Jesus, those who are scandalized by the exclusivity of his salvation, that it's Jesus alone, you have to build only with this cornerstone, it has to be in the building. Those who are scandalized by that are destined to eternal exclusion from God's people and God's glory. Theirs is the eternal shame of sinfulness and rebellion, idolatry and impurity. But those who obey the word of the gospel, who are part of this new temple, with Jesus as the cornerstone who gives shape and stability to the whole building, those are destined to eternal inclusion with God and his people in his eternal kingdom. Theirs is the eternal honor of Christ. What is the distinction? Shame and honor. Right? Reject the cornerstone or accept the cornerstone and build on it. Build your own thing without Jesus, or build what God is building, participate in his building with Jesus as the cornerstone. It's very clear. Peter is not leaving any doubt that there are two paths, and there are two identities. And those two identities, either one is determined based on the word, the proclamation of the church. So as we preach the gospel, as we proclaim his excellencies, because we have tasted that the Lord is good, and we can say it. And as we say it, it separates people. There are some that embrace it and say, I will build my life on this cornerstone. So take my life and use it however you want in the spiritual building. And for them, there's honor. And the other group find that their identity is apart from Christ, and they reject Christ, and they stumble over the cornerstone. And their identity is an identity of eternal shame. And that doesn't change unless their relationship to Jesus changes. This is how Peter lays it out. So let me talk about the eternal honor that you have. And I'll finish with that. Verse 9. I've built up to verse 9, right? It's easy to go to verse 9 right away. But verse 9 makes sense because of the metaphor. Because Peter has already laid out the choice. He's laid out different identities. And now he says that anybody who obeys the word 
and it's part of the spiritual building. This, verse 9, is your honor. This is your honor. This is your identity. It's not earned. It's honor that's given to you. It's honor that's shared. This is Christ's honor that's shared with you. I'll compare it to honorary degrees. Nobody earns an honorary degree. <laughs> Some don't even get them and pretend they do have them. So you don't earn it. You are given it. You see, you're given it. You're acknowledged and you're honored. This is exactly what's happening with us Christians. You are a chosen race. That's one honorary degree for you. You are a royal priesthood. That's what Jesus says about you. Holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is descriptive of the kind of honor that belongs to you simply because you are connected to the cornerstone and you're one of the living stones in the spiritual house. This is who you are. It's who you are. The question is, will you embrace it? Will you live in it? Will you apply it to you? Will you put those letters behind your last name and say, these are my degrees, honorary as they may be, but they're mine because God gave them to me. This is what the gospel makes you. You're a chosen race. That means that you're not really the race you are. You're something else now. And while you, you continue to be who you are, but God gives you something better, something above that. Chosen. Not, not something that you're just randomly born into, but this is chosen for, by God for you. The ideas of uniqueness, right? And by the way, these are all Old Testament ideas about Israel, right? But God chose them, plucked them out. He found them. He says, you'll be mine now. Not because they were a great nation, not because they were a great race, but because God loved them. And he set his heart on them, and so he picked them out. And now that's their honor. And so for us as believers, this is our honor, that Jesus found us, and he chose us, and he got us, and that he's connected us into this new people. You are a royal priesthood. Not enough just to be a priest, you know. Not enough just to be a king. God is going to make you a king and a priest in his kingdom. Did you know that in the Old Testament, those two were parallel tracks? You can never be a king and a priest together. Now, some have tried. David really wanted to be a priest. God didn't let him. There were others who tried to their detriment to mix those two, if you remember some stories from the Old Testament. But now, God says, now, in the church, in the spiritual temple, you can be a priest and a king. You do both royal priesthood. That's your honor. You're a holy nation. What does that mean? Again, the idea of uniqueness, the idea of being separate, being taken out of the world and being made something else. Among all the nations, we, the Christians, we're different. We're a holy nation. We're something that's set apart for God so we would proclaim His excellencies, so we would live for Him, so we would be different from the world. That's who you are. Like it or not, that's who you are. That is your degree. God gave it to you. You are a people for God's own possession. How precious are these words. That you are God's. He found you. And he took you into his household. And he adopted you. And he made you his own. So whenever God looks at you, whatever you're doing in your life, however consistently you live with this identity, 
God always looks at you as his child. You're his. You're his. He never sees you as a stranger, as somebody that belongs to someone else. You are his. A people for God's own possession. He made you for himself. You're his. Now this honor is Christ's honor shared with you. All these things are true of Christ. And this is what you find in God's economy, that as he changes you, as he calls you out and brings you in, all the things that are true of Christ become true of you. And the honor that is Christ is shared with you. A church father said, we are royal from the fact that Christ is a king. And we are a priesthood from the fact that he is a priest. Furthermore, we are also a holy people, so called by the one who is called holy in himself. So you're a priest, you're a king, you're a prophet because he is those things. And he shares that with you. So what's the difference between shame and honor, between death and life, between these two identities? The difference is Jesus. Jesus, the cornerstone. Everything hinges on what you do with the cornerstone. And this Jesus offers himself to you along with the whole spiritual structure of the church by grace. This is verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is he saying? Figure out who you are in Christ. Learn about who God is and learn about who you are. And anybody can become his own. Anybody can become part of this building. This, this is amazing what he's saying. It's purely by grace. It's not because of your lineage. It's not because of your morality. It's not because of your membership. You come to the cornerstone. You come to the living stone and you become through him a living stone in the building, a priest, a king, a special possession of God, his special treasure. You become that by grace. So believe in Jesus, know God, and know yourself in his spiritual house.